1: Learn all about investing in real estate in Elgin, Illinois, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Elgin. Plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Elgin. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors.
2: So sacking Real Estate Investing Strategy. I'm James Orr. Uh, here are the strategies that we covered a few classes ago. We did a whole class on real estate investing strategies, and I, I kind of walked you through an overview of all the different strategies in that class. And then my intention was to give you a big picture in one, two-hour class, and then dive deep with both a qualitative deep dive, and then also a quantitative deep dive of like how these function toward you achieving financial independence. So you'll see numbers tonight on house hacking and some of the other ones we just did, so you can see the comparison. So here's the overview of the strategies. The primary strategies I intend to cover in the classes and the podcast and everything else are these three, the buy and hold, which includes short-term rentals and vacation rentals, the nomad strategies and all the variations like nomad by proxy, nomad with house hacking, which we'll talk a lot about tonight, nomad to short-term rental, uh, vacation rentals, nomad with lease option exits and the ultimate real estate agent retirement plan. Um, So all the nomad ones are part of that group and then house hacking. So the third one, this is like the final, in the triad or trilogy for the primary strategies that we're going to be focusing on. So those are the three. Then we've got the whole group of these secondary strategies, which uh, there's probably a lot of podcasts or a lot of people that kind of teach this, but it is not the primary focus of what I intend to cover in the podcast and the classes. So I'll tend to focus more on the three primary buy and hold nomad and house hacking and the variations of those. But there's other strategies too, which I will teach classes on just to kind of be a completionist but it is not my intention to constantly be deep diving into this. Although, who knows, I get distracted. Someone kind of shows me this shiny object and I I tend to go down this path where an entire summer becomes the summer of creative financing or something. But at this this point in time, I do not intend to have these be uh, a major part of the podcast. So the secondary strategies are the whole creative financing family, owner financing subject to, rent to own, lease option, lease purchase, Uh, the ultimate strategy, um, then anything like quick turning or flipping properties, that kind of strategy. The Burr and Burr models, which one, one as an extra R. Uh, wholesaling, wholesaling, options and option auction, tax liens, tax deeds, and then partnerships and syndications where there are three different roles for partners: the deal maker/syndicator, the guy who like puts together the partnership, brings in the money partner, brings in the loan partner, finds the deal, manages the whole thing. Um, so that's the deal maker/syndicator. Then there's the money partner, the person who brings in. Usually the money for the down payment and the reserves and holding costs and fix-up costs and all that other stuff. And there could be more than one or one person can play more than one role as well. And then the loan partner, the person who actually signs for the loan or gets the financing for that. So those are typically the three roles of a partnership. And we'll go into some detail about those. The classes coming up for these, because I've got classes for all of them. I've got a creative financing, quick turn, Burr wholesaling, options, option auction, tax liens, tax deeds, and partnerships. Those will largely be in the similar format to what tonight is. And um, so we'll do that. And then the things I'm not covering, I'm not gonna cover real estate investment trust. Just go talk to a stockbroker and buy a real estate investment trust. I'm not gonna do a whole class on that. And if people are asking like, well, what about probate? What about short sales? What about foreclosures? What about pre-foreclosures? Those are sort of included as sub kind of characteristics of other strategies. Like a lot of the creative financing stuff, it has to do with pre-foreclosures and and to a lesser degree foreclosures. Um, and then a lot of the fix and flip ones are probably foreclosure type properties and stuff like that. So. I'm not going to do separate classes on those, at least not right now as part of this series, but that's the thinking right now. Any questions on real estate investing strategies and what we're covering? I'm just like going off tonight. I'm just like in the zone, looking out the window and teaching. So if you guys have questions, let me know. All right, cool. All right, so house hacking. So um, let me just cover right up the top. There's no slide for this, but I, I think this comes up a lot when people hear me talk about Nomad or they talk about house hacking. Nomad and house hacking are different. So Nomad, if you remember, is sequentially buying owner-occupant properties. You buy a property as an owner-occupant, you move in, you live there for a year or more, but you have to live there usually for at least a year because that's the agreement you have with the lender. So you move in, you live there for a year. Then at the end of the year, you convert that property to a rental and you move into the next property and you repeat that process until you acquire as many rentals as you want. There's technically no limit for the loan except for your your ability to qualify. So um, it's not like you can get 10 and then you're done if you're doing conventional financing as an owner-occupant, you can do 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Where if you're doing regular non-owner-occupant, you usually get cut off at 10. So there usually is a hard limit. And that limit has changed over the years. It wasn't always 10. It's currently 10 right now. And who knows what the lending policy will change in the future. It might get more lax. It might get more strict. You never know. So the difference between Nomad and house hacking. So Nomad, you're buying property sequentially. You're buying them as an the owner-occupant, moving in, converting them to a rental. And you're just repeating that process. House hacking, on the other hand, is where you make use of a property that you're already living in. You're either buying a duplex and renting out one half, you're buying a triplex and renting out the other two units, or you're buying a fourplex and you're renting out the other three units, or you're buying a property and you're renting out the rooms, or you're renting out the garage, or you're parking an RV and you're either living in the RV and renting out the house, or you're renting out the RV as an Airbnb or something like that. The idea though is, you've got an existing owner-occupant property, and you're making use of getting income from the property that you're living in. So house hacking really is a strategy for people to get income from properties that they're living in. You can combine Nomad and house hacking. You can buy a house as an owner-occupant, move in with the intention of moving out in a year, converting that one to a rental. And while you're there, you can have roommates for the property that you're living in. So you can almost use the roommates as a way for you to save up your down payment to buy the next property. It's one way to think about it, okay? So, house hacking is similar in many ways to Nomad because you're doing owner occupant properties. And so, all the financing and a lot of the risk profile is very similar. Most house hackers are trying to reduce, or in some really ideal cases, completely eliminate their housing expense. With, Kevin, you said you're doing um, house hacking right now. Are you able to get um, to offset your housing costs completely? Okay, so Kevin said that he's able to, in Northern Colorado at least, um, completely subsidize his housing expense with roommates via house hacking. So he's combining house hacking and Nomad at the same time, but you're doing the house hacking, you're able to basically live for free or very close to it. I think you said you were up 100 last year and you're down 100 this year. So your, your actual cost out of pocket now is $100 to live. Yeah, so that's amazing. So, um, so most house hackers are trying to reduce or completely eliminate their housing expense. Mathematically, though, if you really step back and you think about it, you just kind of think about, like this whole thing is a big black box with numbers in and numbers out, house hacking looks almost identical to getting a side hustle, right? You could, instead of renting out a room for 700 bucks, you could just get a side hustle for 700 bucks. It looks the same. And then you don't have someone living in your house. But the nice thing about house hacking is if you've got extra space in your house and you're willing to put up with a lot of the inconveniences of having people there, there's some pluses, but I think a lot of people think that there's some inconveniences with it. But if you're willing to do that, you don't have to go get the side hustle and do the extra work. So you don't have to go out and put in hours in order to trade for that, and you can actually get some extra income from doing it. So when we do the modeling, though, in the real estate financial planner software, I model it like a side hustle. So all I basically say is during the period that you're house hacking, you tell me I got one roommate, two roommates, three roommates, whatever it is, and I take the roommate rate and I say, you've got an extra income source. So it's an extra job in there that brings in whatever it is, $650 a month or $1,300 a month. And so mathematically, it just appears as though you have extra income on the owner-occupant property. You've got all your normal expenses on the property you have, but then you're getting a rebate on that from the extra income source. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's see. So usually house hackers, by trying to reduce or completely eliminate their housing expense, it allows them to, one of two things. Number one, it allows them to afford a more expensive asset than they might otherwise can or want to support. So it, it could be, you know, they buy a, a duplex, which is more expensive than they normally want to buy as a house. But because they're house hacking one of the units, they can afford to do that. And the, the big benefit of doing it that way is instead of buying a whatever the price of houses are in your market, you know, $400,000 single family home, maybe you go buy a $700,000 duplex where you're going to rent out one half of it and your rent from the other unit helps to support it so that for you, it looks like you're buying less than a $700,000 property, because maybe you couldn't qualify without that rent coming in from that one half. Uh, or you go buy a fourplex, which is you know almost four times as much. So then you have this larger asset base that's being paid down with debt, and it's appreciating if, if your market's going up. And so you're getting the benefit of owning a larger asset when you do it that way. So that's one of the reasons why someone might do it. Or they can get the rent coming in from their property. Like, let's say you're renting out a couple of bedrooms. You could take that extra income, and instead of buying a, a larger house than you can afford, now you can take that extra income and you can use it to invest in something else. You could use it to save up for a down payment on the next property you're going to buy, or you could use it to buy stocks or bonds or commodities or Dogecoin or whatever you want to do um, in order to take that extra money and invest in something. All right, did I cover everything I had on there? Oh, I do need to say this. So just because house hacking does allow you to buy these larger assets, like a fourplex or something, you still need to qualify for the loan. So you can't just go out there and say, oh, I'm going to go buy a you know a $5 million house and try to rent out the rooms. You need to qualify for the $5 million house to do that. And the benefit of doing like a duplex, triplex, or fourplex is that most of those are going to come where they're rented or um, at least they've got the likelihood that you're going to get rent on them. And those rents could be used to help you qualify for the property when you're doing your acquisition. It is much harder to qualify with the roommate thing. Although if you have roommates that you are in your current property, your lender will oftentimes allow you, if you're going to take those roommates with you, to continue to use those as part of your qualification process. So be aware that that is also a possibility too. Okay. Any questions on this? We good? All right, cool. Exceptions. So today I'm going to go over a whole bunch of things in your handouts. You guys got this real estate investing strategy profile thing. So you'll be using this to kind of of characterize the house hacking strategy. And you may be saying, James, you describe this thing as whatever it is, but really, can't you do this? And the answer is yes. There's lots of exceptions to what I'm going to say. I tried to use the most general case, but there are lots of ways you could say, but can't you sort of do it this way? Yes, you probably could. It may be unusual, and so I'll try to stick to what's most common, but there are exceptions to a lot of these things. So um, beware just because you don't think there's a chance that X can happen doesn't mean it won't happen. My intention with tonight's class is that this is a starting point to give you a lot of background information about how the strategy works and how I think about it, but really do your own research to verify everything I said. Um, You should not rely on me. Okay? Any questions on this? All right. So house hacking variations. Let's just kind of start going down what we're going to be covering tonight. So there's traditional house hacking. When you have traditional house hacking, you typically go buy a house, single family home as an example, and you're usually going to put 0% down if you're going to get a VA loan. And VA loans allow you to buy single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes. They require that you be a veteran. So you have to have served in the military and have veteran benefits, VA benefits. Um, and you could use that up to a certain limit. You're not limited to just one. You're limited to the lo- to the actual li- um, the benefit you have from the VA. So you could possibly use your VA benefit for more than one house if you happen to be in an area and to find a property that's uh, inexpensive enough. Or if you sell your VA property, then you could reuse your benefits, although it's a little bit more expensive to use them on a second time. So VA is usually a specific loan program that you have to be a veteran to get. It's a nothing down loan program. Instead of having... PMI, private mortgage insurance, which private mortgage insurance is an insurance that the lender requires you get when they make you a loan where you put less than 20% down, it protects them in case you default. So they basically said, hey, listen, if I'm going to let you put 5% down on a property, then I want to make sure that you pay a third party insurance in case, I, in case you default as the buyer on the property, I want to be protected. Okay. So in those cases, PMI protects the lender. With VA, though, there is no actual um, PMI with VA. Instead, they charge an upfront funding fee. And you could choose to pay your PMI as one lump sum upfront fee. But VA is a special case where the Veterans Administration actually charges you an upfront funding fee, which is part of their insurance that they use in order to make good on any loans that go bad when they, um, the VA guarantees it with the banks, the local banks that are doing it. So if you're gonna go buy property, you could do 0% down for VA. And that's one of the two loans that you can do for multifamily. So if you're not a veteran, you're gonna have to do this other one if you wanna buy a duplex, triplex, or fourplex. Um, But basically 0% down is the VA loan, or you could do 3% down conventional loan. And these loans are all on your sheet here. What does the top of the sheet say? Loan type mortgage insurance comparison. So there's a little spreadsheet here that shows you all the different loan types if you've got that handout. And it shows you all the different ones. You can follow along on that one if you wanna take any notes. So three percent down is another conventional loan program. It requires PMI for doing that, and there's two different options that I have on there. Although there's a third lump sum upfront fee, you can either pay it monthly the PMI, or you can choose to have the lender pay it for you on your behalf, and you are voluntarily taking the at a higher interest rate instead. So think of it this way: you guys know that if you wanted to go get a loan, you could tell the lender, "Hey, listen, what are the rates today?" And they tell you five and a half percent. You say, "Well," What if I wanted to pay you? Can I buy down my interest rate? And they say, yeah, you could pay us two points, whatever two points are in the loan, and uh, we will allow you to have 5.375 instead of 5.5. So you could buy down the interest rate like that. Well, what most people don't realize is it works in the other direction too. You could say to the lender, look, you know, interest rates right now, if I'm not paying any points, is 5.5. What if I, what if you actually raise the rate voluntarily to 5.625, take a, voluntarily higher interest rate on the loan, the lender would then give you a credit back, which could then cover some of your closing costs, not your down payment. You always need to have that 5% down or 3% down or 3.5% down, that you can never get rid of the down payment portion of it. But some of your closing costs, the lender can contribute. So it could pay things like title insurance or your prepaids on um, you know, your insurance or things of that nature. So it can pay some of those things in advance um, as part of your prepaids as part of the closing costs. So you, so you effectively end up coming to closing with less money by voluntarily taking a higher interest rate, which means your payment's gonna be higher, okay? So that's one option. Okay, so getting back to this. So there's usually uh, different, multi, for different down payments. 3% down is one of the conventional loans. There's really three types of ways to pay. PMI, lump up, lump sum upfront, which I don't have on that sheet. There's lender paid, and I show you the difference of the interest rates between lender paid, or you can pay it monthly. And you do that until usually the loan gets to an 80% loan to value. And then at that point, it usually drops off, except with FHA. FHA, the PMI never drops off. Okay. So the next loan is that 3.5% FHA. So 3.5 FHA financing. There is both an upfront fee and also monthly PMI for FHA. And the the PMI on FHA never goes away. So it's there for the life of the loan. Not even when you get down below 80% loan to value, the PMI doesn't go away at all. The benefit of using FHA, though, is with FHA loans, you can buy duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes with 3.5% down. You have to owner-occupy one of the units. These are all owner-occupant loan programs. Okay? So you can buy single-family homes, duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes with FHA, all for 3.5% down or 5% down. There's a 5% down conventional loan program. Again, it's the same PMI options as a 3% down conventional program. You don't need any special, you know, veteran benefits or anything to get those, and that's typically what most clients are using to do nomad. They're using five percent down. Okay, so traditional house hacking down payments are usually going to be zero, three, three and a half percent for FHA or five, and the zero percent down is usually VA. And so, if you're doing multifamily, it's going to usually be the zero if you got FA, if you got VA benefits, or three and a half if you're doing FHA. Uh, and traditional house hacking it could be single family home with roommates, including what I call non-conforming duplexes, triplex, and fourplexes. What's a non-conforming duplex, triplex, or fourplex? Anyone have an idea? So an example would be a walkout basement. So in other words, you have a an, a part of your unit that's technically not a duplex. It's not listed in public records as a duplex, but it's sort of set up where it feels a lot like a duplex, where you can have a completely separate living area, like a basement that has a walkout, where they can come and go as they please through the back door, Maybe you set up a, a kitchen unit down there against, you know, a lot of times against regulations of the county or the city that you're living in. Or maybe you just have like a kitchen set up, but no stove. You know, you have like a little mini fridge and a little mini, like mini bar sink area. Um, and they use like a little hot plate in order to cook their meals. So it's not technically a duplex, triplex, or a fourplex. It's not listed in public record as that. It's not zoned for that, but you're sort of using it like that. Um, a lot of people, there's there's some people that have converted these uh, up-down bi-level plans where you walk in the front door and they added doors right before the stairs so that now they have an upstairs and downstairs. So you walk in, there's a little landing area, and if you go to the left, there's a door that goes upstairs with its own unit. And if you go to the right, you open the door, there's a staircase that goes down to another unit. And some people have converted these to non-conforming duplex units, and they kind of rent out both of them. Okay? So – um You could do the single-family home with roommates or this non-conforming duplex, triplex, or fourplex from the single-family homes. Or you could do legitimate duplexes, triplex, fourplexes, actually zoned multifamily property where there's a unit, there's two addresses. um, It's zoned that way in public records. Like There's two different utilities, two different electrical boxes, um, two different water lines going, and so on. Um, There's also slight variations on these, like additional dwelling units where you have a Um, A single family home with its own like mother-in-law suites or a a multi-generational property. There's a whole builder now that's kind of catering to this group. They've got a whole bunch of new construction properties where they have two front doors. And one of them is like an intergenerational suite. There's a door that you can close between the units so they still connect. But they're technically two separate units. They have two kitchens, uh, two sets of living areas, two bathrooms, all that stuff. So it's like a duplex, but it's still technically a single family home, which is an interesting product. So if you have a single family home, uh, or even a duplex, triplex, or fourplex, you could rent out rooms in your unit, uh, in like your actual side of the duplex. You could rent out rooms in addition. Um, It is harder to buy more than one duplex, triplex, or fourplex. So if you were thinking, oh, James, I'm gonna combine this house hacking thing you had with Nomad, and instead of buying single family homes, every type of property, I'm gonna buy fourplexes. So I'm gonna buy 10 fourplexes, and I'm gonna do that strategy. What's the challenge with that? Why can't you go buy, you know, 10 fourplexes easily? Anyone know? The financing. So if you have a VA loan, you could go buy one, maybe two if you didn't use all your VA benefits to buy like, you know, two duplexes or two fourplexes sequentially. You buy one, you live there for a year, you convert it to a rental, you move out, you buy the next one. And if you have a little bit left over in your VA benefit, maybe you could do a second one with that. But then, once you get beyond two, like this is like an ideal situation where you're able to find one cheap enough. They didn't use all your benefits. After you've done the two, though, let's say you want to go buy a third one. What's the financing you can do in order to do that? FHA. So, FHA is the only other one you could do to buy triplexes, duplex, triplex, or fourplexes. You can't do the conventional one with low down payments, like a 5% down. So, if you wanted to go do a low down additional unit, then you could do your FHA. What's the problem after you get your two VA ones? That's really a stretch to do. That'd be really hard to do. And that third VA, third FHA one. Yeah, you can't do more than one FHA loan. There's some really weird exceptions. Like if you move more than hundred miles away, or, you know, you had one and you inherited one from your parents because they died and you kind of took over the loan or whatever it is, but they don't usually want to give you two FHA loans. There's some really rare exceptions, but for the most part, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to be able to do two FHA loans. So it's going to be really hard for you to buy that fourth duplex, triplex, or fourplex if you're trying to do this in series without putting a lot more down. You know, Then you got to go put your you know, 15% down for a duplex. I think there's a loan program for doing that as an owner-occupant. Otherwise, it's going to be 25% down for doing any type of multifamily, um, even, and even if you're moving in. Well, maybe there is a 20% down owner-occupant. I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to check with, check with the lender to find out. But I think for most of those, they're gonna probably be 25% down for the multifamilies after that. So there's really no way to do these really low sequential down payments for acquiring these large numbers of multifamilies. Primarily you're gonna be doing one, maybe two if you're lucky. If you happen to be a VA, you know, a veteran and you can get a VA loan for one, or maybe you're you're you both, you met your spouse in the military, you get one, your spouse gets the next one. Maybe you're able to squeeze out a third one because one of you didn't use all your benefits. And then you go to the FHA for her, you do the FHA for him. Maybe you can get to that. But I mean, you're talking about like the stars having to align and it being like perfect. The chance of you doing it is really, really, really hard. So a lot of times we'll just say, we're going to stick the single family homes. So you could do as many of those as you want. You buy 5% down every year for as long as you want to go. Okay. So that's why we typically don't do these multiple multifamily properties in a row. So that brings us to our next variation of house hacking, Nomad with house hacking. This is just combining that idea of having roommates or buying a duplex, and then sequentially buying a new property every year. And in most cases, it's gonna be a single family home. And I think we just covered why, right? So you're gonna be doing single family homes, Nomad with house hacking. And if you guys can't, it was last week we did Nomad, right? Yeah. So last week we talked about Nomad and how you're doing that sequentially with house hacking and what those numbers look like. I'll cover that again tonight when we get to the numbers, but you'll see, it's a pretty impressive strategy. So. I call Nomad with House Hacking, the alternative name for it is sequential house hacking, right? When someone goes and they house hack repeatedly and they're buying uh, you know house after house after house and they continue to house hack, that's sort of like what Nomad with House Hacking is, right, sequential house hacking. Uh, house hacking with traditional buy and hold. So sometimes you'll go and you'll do your one house that you live in and you get a roommate or two or three or four and you live there and you're getting really nice extra income or maybe you're living for free or significantly reduced. But then in parallel, you're using the down payments that you're saving up from doing your house hacking in order to go out and buy 15% down or 20% down or 25% down traditional buy and hold non-owner occupant where you're not moving into those properties. Does that make sense? So this is like you go and you get yourself living for free so that you can build up these down payments really quickly. And then you're acquiring 20% down or 25% down or 15% down with PMI, uh, or like non-owner occupant properties as quickly as possible in parallel. So that's house hacking with traditional buy and hold. And then the last one is house hacking with short-term rentals. If Kevin wanted to, he, he doesn't have to have, um, you know, roommates in his property all the time. He could have opted to keep a room or, you know, an ADU, additional dwelling unit, or, you know, the mother-in-law suite or whatever he had, and actually choose to Airbnb them out to someone. And he could have, you know, people there on weekends and holidays and stuff like that instead of having roommates all the time. And the economics are, you typically get higher rates than you get for having just long-term roommates, but there's more work involved and more upkeep and you tend to have to have a little bit nicer property in some cases. Not saying Kevin's is not nice, but like that's how it typically is for Airbnb. Although there's lots of variations from what, I, what I imagine, so. Okay. So that's house hacking with short-term rentals. There's you know, there's another variation of house hacking with short-term rentals and that is the idea that you're house hacking with your roommate sort of situation or that extra unit that you're doing. Uh, but you could also do what we talked about in the nomad with short-term rentals, where you are nomading, and then once you convert it to a rental, then you are converting those to short-term rentals. So you're kind of buying properties that would make good short-term rentals. Maybe while you're living there, you rent out a room or an extra suite or something like that. But then a year later, when you go buy your next owner-occupant property, maybe you convert that property to a full-time, full-house short-term rental or something like that. So it's kind of a twist on that one, too. So any questions on the variations? Guys, are quiet tonight. Either that or I'm just on fire. Okay. So are, is house hacking more of an investor strategy or more of a real estate entrepreneur strategy? Remember, uh, if you're, pri- you're primarily investing if you put money out with the expectation of getting a return on your money versus real estate entrepreneurship is you are putting in your time and energy into trying to generate an income or uh, like uh, you know business returns on the activities that you're doing. Not that you don't have any money in the deal as an entrepreneur, but really the idea is like, are you spending a lot of time trying to generate money? Like you're in a job as a real estate entrepreneur, or are you putting out money and you want to just largely be passive? And I think house hacking is largely passive. I mean, I'm sure if you do more of the short-term rentals, that's more entrepreneur-ish. But really, you're putting out money, your down payment, 0%, 3%, 3.5%, 5% 5 down, and you're expecting to get a return on having roommates there. Yes, you got to go put leases on there. Yes, you got to advertise, put your tenants in there. You got to manage them, all that stuff. But it's largely passive. It's not like an everyday uh, type of activity. Okay. Money required. So I went into a lot of detail on this. So this slide will go pretty quick. But typically, you usually have to come up with 0% down for the VA loan, 3% down for that conventional, 3.5% down for the FHA, or 5% down for the conventional. And any deferred down payment that you need. And what I mean by deferred down payment is any negative cash flow you might have on that property. So Kevin was saying that, you know, this year he's probably about negative $100. So it's costing him $100 to live in the property. So he needs to budget for that negative $100. He needs to budget for the $100 it's costing him to live, which for most people is not as bad as having a budget for the full, you know, $2,000 or $2,500 a month or whatever you're paying for on your regular mortgage if you weren't house hacking. Uh, But if you convert it to a rental after a year, you still need to budget for that. So if he was negative once he converted to a rental, he would need to budget for that deferred down payment, uh, any negative cash flow he had on that property. And really, the way to think about this deferred down payment is if, he, if Kevin went and he put 20% down on this property, would it be negative? Probably not. But he bought it as an owner-occupant, probably put 5% down is my guess. And now he's, he's trying to support you know, three roommates or however many he has in this property so that he's not negative on the property. Uh, But if he had put 20% down, it wouldn't be negative at all. So really, because he put 5% down, he has a little bit of negative cash flow. And so you could think about it as he didn't put 20% down, which is probably, I don't know, what, $80,000 or so. My guess is probably $400,000 property. Instead, he put $20,000 down. So instead of putting $60,000 down, he has negative $100 a month. Would you rather have negative $100 a month in cash flow or put $60,000 more down when you buy the property? Because that's really the choice he made, right? Because if you put the 60000 down, it wouldn't be negative. So it's really a deferred down payment. He's paying that $100 a month over time until rents go up enough where he no longer has negative cash flow, which is going to be a lot less than $100 a month until it gets to $60,000. He's going to come out ahead on that deal. Make sense? Okay. Um, and then additionally to that, you need reserves. Even when you're house hacking, you should have reserves set aside. You should have money set aside in case you can't get your house hacking Tenants, or they lose their job with COVID and they can't pay you, or you have repairs on the property, or um, you know something happens where you need money for something that has come up, something unexpected. So you should not be doing these strategies without reserves at all. So really, you're going to need your down payment, any deferred down payment you had, that negative cash flow, and then also reserves in that property. And then you might also see, although less frequently, any extra money to, to prepare the house for short-term rentals or repairs. So I have another client of mine who. Um, one of their strategies is they like to furnish their property really really nice to get premium roommate rent and so there's an extra cost to going out and buying really nice couches and the big screen tv on the wall and probably doing upgraded flooring and you know the things of that nature in order to get the house prepared so you might have extra expenses in order to get your house prepared for that some of their clients of mine are obviously not doing you know, pimping out their house in order to make sure that they can get primo rent for that. They're just having any old roommate rent a clean room, clean, neat house where everything's functional, but they're not having to make sure it's super, super nice. Okay. And then in some rare cases, you probably will put more down or you may buy the house cash. So you can do house hacking where you don't get these low down financing. It's not a requirement of the house hacking strategy that you buy it with little or nothing down, but in most cases, most of the people that I know doing it are trying to minimize how much they have into the deal and they're buying properties with 5% down and then they're usually, usually doing it sequentially where they're buying more than one. Any questions on this? So credit required, same as Nomad, you're buying owner-occupant properties. So really, um, it's most common to qualify for those traditional owner-occupant financing things, that conventional financing, the FHA, the VA loans, you must move into the property or you're committing loan fraud. You cannot fix my strategy and tell tell the lender, yes, wink, wink. I'm going to move into the property, um, but give me the owner-occupant rate, the 3.5% down rate or the 5% down rate, but technically I'm not going to move in. I'm going to say I'm going to move in because that's my intention. You know, you know, the lender will say you have to intend to move in, right? That's what they'll tell you. And then they'll be like, well, I intend to move in until I close and then I'm not going to move in. But I intended to this whole time. Yeah, that's loan fraud. Um, And you'll go to prison for that. So um, it's not worth it to try to like sneak in system. Listen, the lender is willing to partner with you and loan you 95% of the purchase price to do this strategy over and over again. Why would you want to screw your partner like that? Right? I mean, he basically said to you or the the lender, the lender basically says to you, hey, I'll loan you up to 100% for VA loans, you know, 95% 95% if we're doing 5% now, conventional, and I'll do it for you 10 times in a row. But you're like, no, 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 no. I want to screw you on the first deal. I'm going to tell you I'm going to move in. Then I'm not going to do it. Yeah, that's not a good idea, guys. That's just like not a good strategy. All right, so the reason why you have to move in is because you sign a piece of paper, an agreement with the lender at your closing that says you are required to move in, usually within 60 days, and you have to stay there for a year, at least a year. Okay, now can you with extenuating circumstances do it shorter than a year? Sure, yeah, if you, uh, you happen to be living in the property then you get married six months into it or you lose your job and you gotta relocate or you get a job transfer, sure, you can move out before a year. That's like not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is like violating the spirit of the agreement where you say, wink, wink, I'm moving in and then you don't move in. And in case you're wondering, James, but how will they find out? I mean, come on, I mean, they're not gonna like come around and like knock on the door and check to see if I live there, are they? Yes, they will. <laughs> At 6 a.m. according to one person in the room. So yes, they do come and they verify that you are living in the property. They spot check it. It's not like every single one's gonna do it, but they will do that, okay? So typical credit score needed for doing these loans, it's all on that worksheet I gave you, the loan one. There's a list for credit score, minimum credit score in there. The typical credit score for most of these programs is 620. There are some exceptions, maybe down to 580, uh, FHA and VA. Better credit often will get you a better interest rate, although I don't think FHA varies based on uh, credit score, um, and lower your private mortgage insurance. So with the exception of FHA, I think both the conventional loans, your rates can get better depending on what your credit score is, and your PMI payment will also get better. There'll be less if you have better credit score. Okay, so it helps to have a higher credit score. It's something for you to work and on and strive for. Less common situations if you're buying without a loan, a credit score is not required. So if you're paying all cash, it doesn't matter. But in most cases you're gonna need a, a credit score in order to do this. And realize that credit score requirements can change over time. So do check with your lender. Don't come, in, don't come to them and say, but James told me in class that I could do this with 620. you required to give me that loan. No, that's not how this works. The lender will tell you what is required to do your loan. And then that's the rule you need to kind of do it with. It doesn't matter what I say. Any questions on that? Sweet. All right, so here are the Fannie Mae regulations for qualifying for a loan and how they look at rents on your owner-occupant property. So I'm going to read this to you, and then I'm going to, I highlighted in red the section that talks about how they deal with house hacking. So uh, the title of the section is Treatment of the Income or Loss. The amount of monthly qualifying rental income or loss that is considered as part of the borrower's total monthly income or loss, and its treatment and the calculation of the borrower's total debt-to-income ratio varies depending on whether the borrower occupies the rental property as his or her primary residence. Principal residence, what it says, okay? And then here's a section that applies. There's another section, which is when you are not talking about your primary, which I will not read, but since this is a class on house hacking, I do want to read this section to you as to how they qualify you for the loan. So if the rental income relates to the borrower's principal residence, and then there's two bullet points. Bullet point number one, The monthly qualifying rental income, as defined above, it's before this section, must be added to the borrower's total monthly income. So if you have positive income coming in from this property, they add it to how much you make. The income is not netted against the principal interest taxes insurance and HOA of the property. That's what it says on there. The full amount of the mortgage payment, principal interest tax insurance, HOA, must be included in the borrower's total monthly obligations when calculating the debt-to-income ratio. So what they basically said is any rent you get on the property counts as income to you. It's like what I just told you, where it's like a job. It's like a side hustle. So if you're getting $650 a month from a roommate, it just it assumes that you're making $650 a month extra as income. And that you still have to have the full principal interest, taxes, insurance, and HOA that you qualify for as an obligation, as a debt that you're qualifying for when you do the debt to income. So how many people, don't raise your hands, how many people think it's a good idea that, When you get a roommate, one of the benefits is they can slip you cash under the table and you don't pay taxes on it. Is that like a good idea? No, it is not a good idea, okay? You want to report it on your tax return. You want to show a history of getting roommate rent so that when you go qualify for the loan, it just shows up on your tax return and then your lender can use it to qualify you. You don't want to go and think short-term and think, oh, I'm going to save myself a couple dollars and I'm going to not pay taxes on this income I've got from my tenant. No, 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 no. You want to pay taxes on it and you want to get the depreciation benefit of having a roommate there so you can depreciate part of the property anyway. So that was a pause for beverage. Okay. So any questions on these guidelines? Cool. So skills required. So what are the skills you need in order to do house hacking? You need to be able to analyze deals, which we'll talk about here in a second, but use that... uh, the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet in order to do the deal analysis. You need to be able to find deals that would work for house hacking. You know, what we might call cash flowing deals. Although the kind of criteria you have, if you're tr- if you're going to use it exclusively as like a roommate place or exclusively as a duplex, triplex, fourplex, and you're going to them living in one of the units forever is a little bit different than the criteria you might use as if you were thinking you're going to nomad out of this thing in a year and you wanted to convert it as a rental, right? So you need to find cash flowing deals or whatever the equivalent of that type of deal that makes sense for you as a house hacker. You need to get good at acquisition financing. You know that know about VA loans, know about FHA loans, know about the conventional loans for owner occupants and how those work, how the numbers, how they qualify you, how debt to income is calculated. Or talk to a lender and make sure that you understand how you are qualified or are not qualified and what you need to do in order to become qualified. And then finally, I think the last skill is property management skills. So you need to know either one of two things. You either need to know how to manage a property manager if you're going to have someone else do it, which is probably going to be for like your duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. It's probably not going to be for roommates. I don't know of any property managers that are focusing in on roommates. Uh, It might be a niche though. It might be an opportunity for the right property manager to be like a, a roommate finding property manager, which would be interesting. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's probably some liability there. Yeah, I don't know. I'll think about that. But there might be a niche for that. I don't know. So either you got to be good at doing uh, managing your property manager, which is usually going to be the duplex, triplex, or fourplex situation where you're renting out the other units where you're not living with people. or And or you're managing the property yourself. You're managing the duplex, triplex yourself, and you're not hiring a property manager. Or you've got roommates, and you're kind of doing it that way. Or if you're doing short-term rentals, you got to get good at that type of property management. So really, it's kind of like the skills of property management depending on which way you go to do that. Any questions on skills required? Does that make sense, everybody? Sweet. Stability. So uh, I've been discussing this last few weeks and I, I probably should still go look up this guy's name. It's like the third week in a row, I don't know his name. It's kind of embarrassing. So it's the guy that writes uh, the Farnham Street blog. If anyone knows his name, let me know. I could go look it up. I get the newsletter every week. Um, so basically he he sent out a, this has got to be a few months ago now. He sent out a, um, an email talking about this concept of things being actively stable or passively stable. Actively stable, if you don't take action, it's going to kill you. You're going to lose money. Something bad is going to happen versus passively stable. in that, you know, if you don't do anything um, with it, then it'll be fine. It'll kind of like, it'll self-balance, it'll self-neutralize where nothing bad is going to happen to you. So real estate inherently is actively stable. So it is a, it is a strategy where if you don't take action, things, that, things will happen to you. If you don't pay your property taxes, you will lose the property. You know they'll someone will put a tax lien on your property if you don't do it for enough time then they'll execute on the tax lien and they will foreclose in the property and you'll lose ownership of the property. So in that case it's always active. But there's there's kind of like variations within active in my mind. If you got an interest only loan knowing that at some point you're going to have a balloon on that loan and you need to pay off the balance of it that is more active than getting a 30 year amortizing loan that will just kind of automatically pay itself off after 30 years. So if you think about you know, doing fix and flips, where if you don't actually go out there, do the work, fix up the property, um, either sell it or rent it out or something like that, that is an active strategy where if you don't do something about it, you it'll hurt you. Uh, versus more of a buying whole property with a 30 year fixed loan, you get a property manager in place and it sort of just hums along. Maybe you have to manage your property manager a little bit, but it's much more passive than like a fix and flip as, as an example of that. So house hacking is actively stable um and and I think short-term rentals are a little bit more active because there's more activity involved. So, in general, this is a pretty active strategy. Did you look up his name? Yeah. yeah, I'll have to think about it. I should just look it up. Maybe send me an email. All right, scalability. So how scalable is house hacking? And I used to have an extra slide here where I talked about you know real estate in general gets you to a it, it, like just really big picture. Real estate in general gets you to a million dollar net worth, ten million dollar net worth pretty easily. But in order to scale above 10 million, you need to do different things. Um, you, need to be, you need to be thinking differently. You need to be buying different types of investments. And even beyond that, it's much, much harder to do real estate um, to a you know, much larger scale than you know, 10 million, as an example. And 10 million is relatively arbitrary. It's not like an exact number. Um, so how scalable is house hacking? Is it, is it something that's gonna get you to 10 million? And the answer is probably not, right? I think I think house hacking could get you to that kind of like, you know, 1 million to maybe push it 10 million if you're doing more sequential stuff. But house hacking, just one property where you get roommates, that's really not going to get you to these big numbers. So it's not super scalable in that way, unless you're starting to kind of combine it with some type of sequential buying, like a nomad strategy where you're buying one every year and you're trying to do that. And then maybe you're converting those, you're kind of, selling them off after a period of time and converting that into larger multifamily properties. And you're really leveraging up as you go. That's more of a scalable strategy. So house hacking is often limited to one uh, per new property per year. And as soon as you're repeating the process as a nomad with house hacking, I think I talked about that, like if you're going to do that. And then from that perspective, it's hard to scale because you're only able to do one a year. If you had an unlimited amount of money and you were buying properties where you're not moving in, you could buy 10 a year. But with house hacking, you've got to buy one per year. And that's uh, that's one of the reasons it's not super scalable. Um, it could increase speed with short-term rentals, where you could buy a you know second home with 10% down in parallel every year. Um, you could also do it where you're buying um, traditional 15% down, non-owner occupant, 20% down, or 25% down, non-owner occupant in parallel as well. But from another perspective, it actually is more scalable because it requires less down payment. Instead of having to come up with 20% down, you can come up with 5% down. So from a down payment perspective, it seems like it actually encourages scalability because you can acquire more properties with less down payment. So in that way, it's more scalable. But in general, I think it's one of the slower strategies um, at first, although it does help you also build up down payment. So I don't know, there's that to be said. Any questions on scalability? Cool. Risk exposure. So overall, I think house hacking is medium risk, is, is considered a medium risk type of investment. And for the last three classes or so, Buy and Hold, um, Nomad, and House Hacking, I've told you that all three of those were pretty much medium risk. So you're like, is everything medium risk? No, and we're gonna find out. There are other strategies we're gonna cover in future classes that I think are different risk levels. But for the last three, they all kind of have very similar characteristics because they all include these risks. Although House Hacking and Nomad probably have an additional risk, which is this first one, Amplified Returns. When you put a little amount down, the returns you get are amplified. If you have um, $100 a month cash flow and you only put zero down, that seems like an infinite return. Although it's really, really hard to get an actual infinite return without reserves and other stuff like that. So, But the idea is, though, is that you have amplified returns. So a positive $100 seems like an infinitely positive return. But if you have negative $50, that is also negatively, uh, negatively infinite. So it's amplified in those directions depending on what you do. Whereas, if you put 20% down or 25% down and you have a slight increase or slight decrease in rent or you have a repair, because you have so much more invested, those returns get muted. They get softened a lot more. And so they're not as, as radical in either direction. So it can go both ways for these amplified returns from the small but down payments. In addition, another risk is the increased likelihood of negative cash flow or deferred down payments with these small down payments you're making. So by putting 0% down or 5% down, you have a much greater probability of having some negative cash flow on a property or a deferred down payment. If you had put 20% down or 25% down, the chance of you having negative cash flow would be much, much lower, okay? Um, you could have the risk of your price declining during ownership. Property values do not go up, even though Kevin says they always go up. Uh, rents can go down during your ownership. Property values can go up, property values can go down, rents can go up, rents can go down. If this is the first time you're hearing hearing about that, don't be surprised. I think a lot of folks, especially the last decade or so, rents have gone nothing but up. Rents can go down. So can prices. Your credit is at risk. If something bad happens to you and you're no longer able to make that mortgage payment or manage that property, there's a chance that you could have a foreclosure. And that could could mean an impact to your credit report. And so your credit is at risk by doing that. And then you have all the typical tenant and property management risks, you know, slip and fall, um, you know, being accused of violating fair housing laws, you know, all those types of things. You have all those risks when you do house hacking as well. Uh, You could argue that there's slightly more risk with short-term rentals, vacation rentals, but I think that that is offset by the higher income you get from vacation rentals. So I wouldn't consider that a significant extra risk, although... You do have a slightly different additional risk that you with short-term rentals than you do with, you know, year-long leases type things. And that is that there are a lot of municipalities, cities, counties, HOAs that are coming in and cracking down on short-term rentals. And they're saying, "Hey, we're not allowing short-term rentals anymore." So I think there is an additional risk that you could see your short-term rental go from something that you were able to operate to something you were no longer able to operate because your HOA or your city or your county came in with additional, more restrictive rules and limited your ability to do that. Does that make sense? Okay. Also, insurance companies. I've heard some insurance companies are not allowing short-term rentals. You need to go get a specialized insurance company to do this. Okay, so profit speed. How quickly do you make money and what size or magnitude of money do you make it at one interval? So with house hacking, you typically can start seeing a profit immediately. That's one of the one of the differences between house hacking and nomad is nomad, you buy a, ha- buy a house, you live there for a year. And unless you're house hacking while you're nomading, you're not getting income on that property for a year. You got to support that property until you go and convert it to a rental. That's potentially problematic if you need income right away. With house hacking, you move in, you can get roommates right away. You know, if, of the people that have had roommates in this thing, how many have moved in like that day had roommates? Yeah. So like three people in the room already had roommates when they, when they uh, moved into their property. So you could be earning money like that instant. In fact, you probably got down payments, security deposits, and everything in advance. So, you probably got those up front. So, with house stacking, you typically start seeing profit right away. Rents and security deposits are typically paid in advance. Short term rentals while you're still living in the property may increase your cash flow. It's not common with roommates, but using a property manager can slightly delay your time to receiving cash flow. There's usually a delay between when they collect it and when they pay out to you. So, I've talked about this in other classes. I'll give you the really short version rundown of this, but this is the um, return on investment quadrants. So on the left-hand side are cash later quadrants. That's appreciation and debt pay down. Those are the things you get later on when the property value goes up over a number of years, you pay down a loan over a number of years, your amount of equity you have has usually gone up over that time. So this is usually money that you see over time. And then the the now stuff, cash flow, And tax benefits. So if you're getting rent from your roommates, that's the money you tend to see right away. And then the tax benefits, which is usually depreciation, you usually see that either in your paychecks because you went and you increased your exemptions or at the end of the tax year when you get a uh, larger amount back in your refund or you had to pay in less uh, of the amount that you owed. Kind of that's how that works. So those are kind of how the quadrants work. The ones on top, appreciation and cash flow, those are speculative. You're kind of like market dependent. You're relying on things to go your way, like property values going up, or rents kind of remaining where they are or rents going up. And the ones on the bottom, debt pay down and tax benefits, those are sort of like the base of the pyramid where contractually you get debt pay down no matter what the market does. If you get a 30 year low and you're paying down a certain amount of debt with every mortgage payment, whether you like it or not. Okay, that's what the debt pay down portion is. And then tax benefits, unless the tax law changes, you're getting depreciation for 27 and a half years, whether you like it or not, okay? So those are the two kind of like baseline ones that are not market dependent. They're less speculative. They're only speculative if, you know, you stop making your mortgage payment or in tax benefits wise, if uh, the tax law changes and you're no longer able to take depreciation. Okay. So we talked about that. Any questions on profit speed and profit size? Oh, I'll, 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 I'll comment on size. So the interesting thing about house hacking is it has the potential of bringing in more cash flow than a lot of other strategies. Because... If you think about renting something by the room, that is one of the strategies listed on how to improve cash flow. It tends to be a higher cash flowing thing. Like if Kevin were to move out of this property and he were to actually charge rent for his position there, he probably could get more rent than if he just converted to a regular, straight up year-long lease. You know, he'd have five different roommates or however many he has. I don't know exactly how many he has, but he might have five different roommates in there, one that was his position before, and these four other ones are all renting rooms, and he's collecting a much higher dollar amount. So From a perspective of like magnitude, the cash flow quadrants in this kind of like return on investment quadrant thing here uh, would be typically larger than it would be in other strategies, more so than a lot of other strategies. Maybe not short term rentals, maybe short term rentals a little bit higher. But then otherwise, appreciation and debt pay down are the same. Um, From a return on investment standpoint, they get larger because your down payment is smaller. And then the tax benefits are going to be fixed no matter what strategy you're doing. Although if you're putting less down from a return on investment characteristic, that tends to be a little bit higher because you're putting a smaller amount down and the amount you're getting is fixed. It's based on the price of the property. Any questions on profit speed? All right, cool. Finding deals. How do you find house hacks? I mean, how do you go find a duplex or triplex or fourplex or you know a room with you know a house with additional dwelling unit or a mother-in-law quarter? How do you find those?
0: Patience. Yeah, they are harder to
2: find it right here. That's true. Although, really, it's got a lot of duplex, triplex, four bucks, not as much for columns a lot of So, the most common methods for finding these multiple listing service, that's where the overwhelming majority of them are going to show up. In addition to that, you could do for sale by owner. Uh, and for sale by owner really breaks down into two groups. There's the actively marketed for sale by owners, for sale by owners that are going out there, they're listing their property on Zillow, they're putting a yard sign up, you know, they're doing things in order to um, encourage people to find their property. And then you've got all the hidden for sale by owners and those you got to find by doing marketing. These are the people that maybe they don't know they're going to sell, or maybe they haven't told anyone they're going to sell, but they want to sell or they'd be open to selling. Okay. And so those are all the hidden ones. You usually find those by either marketing or networking. In addition to that, can you go find, you know, the rogue duplex or single family home with a mother-in-law suite or something like that from a wholesaler? Can you do that? Yeah, I think that comes up, but I think that's more of a secondary, more unusual strategy for for you to find these types of properties. Any questions on finding house hack deals? We got one more slide on finding stuff. So when you're looking inside the MLS, you could definitely set up searches for, show me all the duplexes, show me all the triplexes, show me all the fourplexes, that's pretty easy. But then there's a bunch of keywords that I think will be helpful for you if you're searching to try to find house hacking type properties. So additional search terms might include mother-in-law, in-law, or suite. And I would spell sweet correctly, S-U-I-T-E. I would also spell it wrong because not all real estate agents can spell. Okay? So I would put it in there as both the correct spelling and the incorrect spelling so that you catch the ones that they don't know how to spell. I'm not, I mean, I'm picking on myself. I'm a real estate agent too. Um, so I think you search for words like that. Um, You could also search for the term separate entrance because I think that would also be a key. And, and you're going to do these searches and there are going to be false positives that come up, right? You're going to be like... Uh, It'll say something like, stay away from the mother-in-law with this amazing spacious house in the mountains, right? And so it has nothing to do with the mother-in-law suite. They just happen to use the mother-in-law and that's not really a property you necessarily wanna use as a house hack. But I think doing these search terms will give you enough positives that it's worth putting them in and doing search for. So uh, mother-in-law, in-law, suite, those three terms. Uh, separate entrance is another one. Kitchens, plural. If you, you know, you do a regular search for kitchen, it's not gonna help you. Uh, But kitchens, that usually implies that there's more than one. And that that usually is a sign of a property that could be a good house hack for you. Uh, ADU stands for accessory dwelling unit or additional dwelling unit. Um, The term accessory dwelling unit or multi-generation or multi-generational. Those terms could help. Uh, Basement apartment, another term to search for. Garage apartment, maybe even just apartment. Cottage, compound. Pool house, boathouse, maybe wet bar. If you're looking for ones where you can actually park an RV and you have your RV where you live in or you rent that out as a different Airbnb thing, maybe do a search for RV. Uh, Airbnb, VRBO, vacation rental, short-term rental, uh, STR, which is abbreviation for short-term rental. A lot of times there's limited in space, and so some people will, will use abbreviation for that. Um, house hack, just do a search term for that. And I would probably do that with space and without a space, because I think some people think it's one word. Uh, roommate, also roommate with a space, without a space. Non-conforming, for example, non-conforming duplex. I wouldn't recommend violating any rules to rent these, um, but you, if you're willing to, or if it's something you're willing to go and do the correct paperwork in order to get it converted to conforming, then you might want to consider that. But you guys do realize if if you go buy a, non-conforming duplex, you know, a single family home that's really set up as two different units that the county can come and say, or the city can come and say, hey, you can't do that. That's against the rules and they could fine you or they could force you to, to kind of clean that up. So if you bought a property and you paid a premium in order to acquire a property that really isn't what you're using it as, that's potentially problematic, right? And there are some people that, you know, at least around here, there's, um, there's occupancy rules So uh, if you've heard of the U plus two rule, it means you can live there plus two other people. So if you had three roommates and you, you'd be violating the rules. And at least around here, the rules are pretty stiff. Um, I think the penalty for violating U plus two in the city of Fort Collins um, is $1,000 per day per person. Yeah, so if you're violating with two extra people, it's $2,000 per day, it's pretty gnarly. Um, And there's always talk about whether they're gonna repeal that or change it or amended or whatever, but as of right now, I think that's the rule. And in case you're wondering, oh, they don't really enforce it. That's just sort of on the books. No, they have at least one full-time enforcement agent. I think they may have more than one now, where they're actively going around there looking for people doing this. And if you have a neighbor, if you, know, you got four roommates, you got four cars, and you accidentally park too close to the one neighbor's house, they'll just call the city. So you don't wanna do that. And they're so serious about it, at least around here, they will make you sign a form when you buy the property and when you sell the property that you acknowledge that rule. And you're supposed to have a copy of that form with every lease that you do. And not having the form is a fine. So if you do a lease in the city of Fort Collins and you don't have that form, then you're violating it. And if they find out, they could charge you a fine for not having the form that says there is a U plus two law and that you agree to abide by it um, for, you know, for not having that if you do it, sign a lease with it, okay? So just be careful about this non-conforming stuff. Don't think to yourself, hey, there's this eight-bedroom house. I'm going to get seven roommates, and this thing's going to be amazing. Maybe not. Maybe not. might not work out the way you planned, okay? So definitely check your, your zoning regulations and your occupancy rules in your city that you're doing that for. Any questions? Is this helpful, this little list for doing stuff? All right, cool. So if you're gonna go analyze a deal for house hack, go download the spreadsheet, realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet. You can download it and do house hacking analysis. Now, if you're gonna go get a couple of roommates, but it doesn't cover your rents, it's gonna show negative, right? Right, your returns are gonna be negative for that first year. You've got a $2,000 a month mortgage, principal interest, tax insurance, HOA, all that other stuff, and you're only collecting $1,800, it's gonna look like you have negative $200. That's because you're living there for negative $200. Right. You're you're paying two hundred dollars to live there, so think about it that way. But then you know next year, if you decide to do like house hacking with nomad or nomad with house hacking, where you're kind of doing these sequentially, next year it should be very different. And so maybe you run it as if you're going to do it for next year, and you know kind of do your year two analysis when you do your deal analysis up front. Any questions? All right, cool. Market conditions. So what kind of market would you want to do house hacking in? Would you want to do it in a market that's declining, where prices are going down or rents are going down? Probably not. So in an ideal world, you want markets with good cash flow and markets with strong appreciation and rent appreciation. It is challenging in markets with significant negative cash flow, although I'll tell you house hacking sure helps, um, and markets with no or negative appreciation or rent appreciation. It's a little bit harder to do in those markets. Any questions on market conditions? Uh, accessibility, availability. In many markets, there are plentiful deals for you to select from the MLS. So it's really just selecting the best one, right? You're, you get to look at a lot of them. You get to decide which one's gonna make the most sense for you. Uh, in some markets, you're sifting and sorting, trying to find the best of the best, right? Like all the deals are positive 10% cash on cash. And you're trying to find the best 10% cash on cash deal or one that's got a little bit better. Or maybe you're making trade-offs for location or for condition or, you know, things that are like second and third tier. And in, in, in some markets like our market, it's really, really, really hard to find properties that have positive cash flow right now with where interest rates are, where prices are, where rents are. And so a lot of times that takes the front driver's seat and then you're making secondary selections based on um, you know, location or something like that. You're like, look, this is the closest we have to not be in significantly negative cash flow. So of the ones that are available in this part of town or this subsidy or whatever we're doing here, Let's go pick the best location in this new construction neighborhood as an example. So it's sort of like that um, when you're in these markets like this. Okay. Uh, interest rates may be a significant factor whether properties will cash flow or not. You know, it's much harder to cash flow at 5.5% interest rates than it was at 3 point, 3.0, um, just much harder. Owner-occupant rates can help over traditional buy and hold. So with traditional buy and hold, most of the time we're putting 15% down, 20% down, 25% down. And those are non-owner-occupant rates. If you look on the spreadsheet here, it shows you the non-owner-occupant rates are like, you know, 6.625 versus 5.5 for the owner-occupant 5% down. So pretty significant increase in rates when you do owner-occupant versus non-owner-occupant, at least right now. And that t- typically holds true over time, but rates vary every day. They can go all over the place. Um, And then finally, verify that you can use the property with the number of roommates you expect and or as a short-term vacation rental before you buy. You don't want to go buy a property only to find out that you can only have one roommate or two roommates when you were expecting to get four. That would be problematic for you. Okay.
0: Any questions?
1: Cool.
2: Can you use your retirement account to do house hacking? can you go get a self-directed 401k or self-directed IRA account and use the down payments? use your self-directed 401k or self-directed IRA in order to do down payments to buy like house hacking properties? Nope. It's self-dealing. So you're not able to do that. So not something you can do there. Okay. So let's get into the quantitative analysis. So most of the first half of the presentation or whatever it's been, um, has been primarily going through like how the analysis, uh, how the um, strategy kind of works. Like one of the the characteristics of it, if you think about it from a whole bunch of different perspectives, that's how I think about it, is like, so what is it from scalability? What is it from down payment? What is it from credit requirement? What skills are required? Now we're gonna switch from more of this qualitative approach to numbers. Like how does it perform if you're trying to achieve financial independence? How quickly does it get you there, Um, especially compared to other strategies? Like if you've got one person in one situation and they're considering a wide range of different strategies, how does house hacking compare to doing nomad, let's say, or doing uh, buy and hold, or you know the other ones we get into the future, like doing creative financing, or those? So tonight we're going to primarily focus in on the house hacking and how that performs numerically. So I will tell you that I'm going to go through a whole bunch of numbers here, but each one of these could literally be its own class. Like I could break down, you know, house hacking with two roommates and spend an entire class going through the analysis of that and how risky it is and you know what your net worth looks like there and what your um, you know down payment and how quickly you acquire properties and what the characteristics of those properties are. I mean, we could really spend a lot of time going into detail. I chose to focus on um, months to financial independence. So how quickly you get to financial independence with my strategies, with, with all the strategies so that I could sort of do a fast run through quantitative analysis on a bunch of different strategies rather than getting slowed down by looking at one really, really deeply, but I probably am going to do more full classes on individual strategies or sub strategies where we really dig into stuff so that you can understand the nuance. Cause once you decide, Hey, I want to do this nomad with house hacking, then you really want to know about that one. And it doesn't matter all these other variations as much anymore. Just that, Hey, look, this one looks really, really good. Let me learn about that so I can implement it. Right? So we'll eventually probably do full classes on those. I will point out it's naive to generalize these results. So. These are the results with very, very specific assumptions. We're gonna go over like the details of what this person is, how much money they have, how much money they make, what their goal is in financial independence, the types of properties they're able to get in their market, the interest rates right now. But any of these things change, all things are off. Like like you cannot just assume this one is always better than the other one. That can change depending on what the assumptions are when we do this. So we're primarily gonna focus on house hacking, 5% down payment with PMI. I didn't do the 0% down. I didn't do zero. And then you go to three and a half and then you go to five and you do fives. I mean, this is why these could be like full day seminars for like this whole thing. I just said, let's stick with 5% down payment with PMI. It's the one that's on your sheet, conventional loan, uh, monthly paid PMI. If you're kind of wondering, I could have done buying duplex, buying triplex, buying fourplex. I opted not to really dig deep into the duplex, triplex, and fourplex because you can't repeat it. So I could have done, you bought one duplex or one triplex or one fourplex, but there's so many variables in doing that. I had to put a stake in the ground and just try to do as as much comparisons as some of these as we could, but I I decided not to focus in on duplex, triplex or fourplex and what those look like. But I did vary your roommates, whether it's worth getting one, two, three or four roommates and what impact that has. And I did vary the loan. If you're doing a buy and hold in parallel and you're putting 15% down with PMI or 20% down or 25% down. And so those will be there as well. And then for house hacking with short-term rentals, the way I thought about this, I could have gone and done a lot of short-term rental stuff and increased the income, but really when you're thinking about house hacking and I say you have one roommate, you're getting $650 a month from that roommate. Maybe if you did short-term rentals, it's the equivalent of having two roommates. Right? And so I didn't go separate those out, even though I could have, I could have said, you know, you're doing short-term rentals like this instead I just basically just said, Hey, look, I showed you one roommate, two roommates, three roommates, four roommates. So if you're doing short-term rentals and you think your short-term rental income is gonna be almost the equivalent of you having two roommates, except you don't, you're just doing a short-term rental on your unit, then use the numbers for two. You can always go in here and modify these assumptions, okay? Um, also, I just wanna point out that when you do short-term rentals, it's more of your time. So part of the increased returns you're getting, you need to allocate as a dollar per hour for the work you're doing. It's not fair to say that that's all just pure return on your investment that you made it's also labor so we'll also talk about house hacking with traditional buy and hold i'll run buy and hold in parallel and then no man with house hacking aka sequentially house hacking so doing house hack over and over and over again keeping roommates as you go all right so i got to define for you what financial independence is so that you know how we know if they have achieved it or not so really financial independence is when the minimum when your when your assets produce enough money to support your minimum target monthly income. What I call the minimum target monthly income in retirement, what some people might call lean fire, or some people might just call regular fire. It's where your investments can support your lifestyle so that you do not have to work anymore. It consists of three parts. Part number one, passive income. Passive income consists of social security, pensions, and annuities. That's all passive income. Number two, net cash flow from rentals. So, after all your expenses, take your gross rents, and any other income you have coming in from the property, subtract out your principal, interest, taxes, insurance, HOA, maintenance, vacancy, uh, property management, all of those things come off the top. Your net after all expenses is part of that, whether you qualify for financial independence or not, net cash flow. And then finally, any other assets you have, not equity and properties, you've already counted that as part of your cash flow. You cannot count equity twice. But any other investments you have that you've invested in stocks, or bonds, or mutual funds, or anything like that. Maybe you made hard money loans. All of that stuff clumped together times whatever you consider to be your safe withdrawal rate. So the safe withdrawal rate is the percentage of money that you could take out each year from your investments that are invested in these things, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, things like that, um, that you can safely withdraw, that you're not likely to run out of money. And there have been studies done on this. If you guys have heard of the Trinity study, uh, that's a study that talks about using the 4% safe withdrawal rate. Where they've done studies based on certain percentages in stocks and certain percentages in bonds, and that you're not very likely to run out of money over a 30 year time horizon uh, if you use 4% to take money out. So if you have a million dollars, you could take out $40,000 a year. The $40,000 does adjust up with inflation each year, but you take out $40,000 a year um, and use that to live on. Okay. So that's what yearly safe withdrawal rate on any invested assets means. So the three parts passive income, social security, pensions, annuities, net cash flow, and then that yearly safe withdrawal rate on the best assets. The sum of all three of those, if it exceeds your minimum target monthly income retirement, then you're financially independent. Okay. Any questions on this? Cool. So here are the changeable assumptions. I made up like a uh, prototypical person who's doing this. I call them Norm and Norma. If you guys are listening to the Real Estate Financial Planner podcast, but it's basically the same uh, assumptions there. Uh, They're married. They're both 21 years old. They recently graduated from college and they're working in a technology department of a large healthcare business. They have a total of $10,000 saved up. They earn combined, between the both of them, $72,000 a year. That's $18 per hour times 2,000 hours, $36,000 a year each. They're saving about $1,000 per month before they buy any houses. So that's based on them renting. They're renting somewhere for $1,800 a month and they're able to save 1000 of their $6,000 a month in income uh, toward financial independence. They are obsessed about achieving financial independence, and they're looking through all these different strategies, trying to find the optimal one for them, the one that both fits their lifestyle, what they're willing to do, but then also gets them to FI as fast as possible, and as safely as possible, honestly. Uh, they wanna find their best path, we talked about that. They're both gonna take Social Security at age 67, so we've got that modeled in. And Social Security is estimated based on them working until they're full age 67. But technically they are, um, if they stop working early, it should be a little lower than what I have programmed in here. So if they achieve financial independence at age 50, then they're technically not working until 67. So the Social Security that we have modeled in is a little bit higher than that. Any questions on the assumptions? And you could change all these. So if you are you make $80,000 a year, go ahead and change it. You can go ahead and log in and change all the assumptions for all these scenarios. Any questions on these? Cool. Uh, So these are the loans we are going to use on your sheet. So they're primarily doing this 5% down with monthly MI, 5.5% down payment. That's the one I'm primarily focused on in all the scenarios. If they're doing um, in parallel buy and hold, these are the 15%, 20%, 25% down options. So I'm using those when I talk about the 15% down, 20% or 25% down ones. You got the worksheet for that. So I did this for 60 years, modeled uh, a 60-year time frame. Uh, their, t- effective tax in- their effective income tax rate for calculating their depreciation benefit is 17.85. I assumed inflation is 3% per year. That mortgage interest rate based on their owner-occupant is 5.5%. It does that PMI. I use the 4% safe withdrawal rate, and they're doing that $5,000 a month in their target monthly income retirement. And in an ideal world, if they could get to $10,000 a month, they're not living on that right now, but if they could get there, that would be ideal for them. Although I'm not using it in tonight's presentation, but that is one of the things that they're doing. Okay, so let's talk about the property that they're using. So there's a $375,000 property. Um, They're buying it for what it's worth. They're not getting a discount. They're not paying a premium. Uh, They're putting 5% down and there's PMI on that. The property value goes up at 3% per year, by the way. It's keeping pace with inflation. Uh, 1% of the purchase price and closing costs at the time of purchase. They were not able to negotiate with the seller and get the seller to give them any seller concessions. So they got to come to the closing table with all their own closing costs. The interest rate we talked about 5.5% for that 5% down plus the PMI. They're getting 30 year loans. Rent on that property, $2,600 per month and rent decreases with inflation as well at 3% per year. Uh, When they're house hacking, one roommate's worth $650 a month, two roommates, 650 each, 1300 total. Three roommates, $1,950 for the three of them. And for four roommates, if they're able to buy like a five-bedroom and uh, rent it out that way, it is um, $2,600 a month. Okay, so $650 per bedroom. And then 3% of the monthly income is the assumed vacancy rate. 10% is the assumed maintenance rate. So they're putting aside 10% of rents and maintenance. And then 0.75% of the value of the property each year is the assumed property taxes rate. So the initial value is 375. That works out to be about $2,800 in change per year in property taxes. And as property values go up, that property tax number goes up too, because it's always a percentage of the value of the property. And then 0.4% of the value of the property is the assumed property insurance rate. And that is also based on that price, 375, which means that goes up as property values increase too. And uh, in the first year, it's about $1,500. And then for calculating the depreciation benefit, um, I assume 15% of the value of the property is land. So you can only depreciate the value of the building. You cannot depreciate the value of the land. And so in order to do that, we need to know what the value of the land is. Any questions on my assumptions? Cool. All right, let's look at numbers. Here we go. So if Norm and Norma decide to keep renting, and take all of their $1,000 a month that they're earning and they put it in the stock market, it takes them 482 months to hit financial independence. You may wanna write some of these numbers down of the ones that you're interested in comparing it to so that you can see when you get to ones that you're there because there's gonna be a lot of numbers thrown at you. So if you're concerned about this, because I can't put them all on the same chart until the very end and it's really small font. So 482 months if they just do the stock market and they rent. What if they buy an owner-occupant property? They buy a property with 5% down, they move in, they live there. If they do that and they invest in stocks, the amount that they can invest in stocks decreases by a lot. They were saving $1,000 a month by buying a property to live in. They've increased their expenses because it costs them more to buy than it does to rent. Instead of saving $1,000, now they're saving $420 a month. And it, it actually speeds, it still speeds up their time to financial independence where it only takes them 396 months how is it possible that somebody who is saving less money and investing in stocks and the majority of their money for retirement is coming from stocks, how does it speed up their time for retirement? How is that possible? They're saving instead of a thousand dollars a month, now they're saving 420. How are they able to get financial independence earlier? The house value doesn't count toward their uh, retirement, right? Because you've got a house, you can't use the equity in the house as part of your equation for whether you qualify for financial independence so even though the house value is going up at three percent the stock market's going up at eight it'd be worse for them to keep any money in this house right so like what is what is causing them to be able to achieve financial independence earlier pay off the mortgage so by the time the mortgage gets paid off they no longer need to be able to afford that principal and interest part of that payment so they're instead of having to earn five thousand dollars a month now they need to earn about three thousand dollars a month in order to be qualified as financial independent because they don't need to they don't even have enough income to pay for the mortgage anymore there's no mortgage, right? So that's why it's lower. 396 months is how long it takes them if they buy a house as an owner occupant. If they go, if they keep renting, they stop buying a house now, they went back to saving $1,000 a month. And instead of just buying the owner occupant, they saved up, they put 20% down, and they bought uh, up to 10, 20% down rentals. They can retire in 370 months. So faster than if they bought a house and invest in stocks. So they're renting here themselves, but they've got 10 rentals. 370 months. If they do 25% down rentals instead of 20% down, so they take a little longer to save, but the cash flow on them is a little bit better. It takes 346 months to get there. If they say, hey, listen, I wanna do this 15% down non-owner occupant loans, but they pay PMI, that's still 370 months. So it's still 370 months, whether they put 20% down or 15% down. It's faster if they do 25% down. And by the way, these, this, this one is part of the buy and hold class. I go through this in detail. I'm just sort of getting to the spot where we start talking about house hacking, okay? This is sort of like build up. Okay, so ignore house hacking for a second. Should they rent or should they buy? Should Norman Norma keep renting for $1,800 a month, increases with inflation, or buy a property with almost $600 a month higher cost? They go from saving about $1,000 per month when renting to about $420 per month when they buy a property living. Should they rent or buy? They have reduced savings amount. Will it matter? And we already talked about this. They eventually pay off that mortgage And if you wait till you pay off the mortgage, then your qualification for financial independence gets much easier. So that sort of becomes an easier hurdle once you get to that point. Okay, so now they owner occupy, then they do 20% down payments. So this one, they buy one owner occupant property, then they take their extra money and they save up for 20% down payments. That takes 394 months. Just the tiniest bit faster than if they buy the owner occupant. and they do all stocks. Doesn't really make that big of a difference. What if they do 25% down, still 394 months? Wow, that's kind of weird. 25% and 20% is still the same. Whoa, it's even the same for 15% down. All of these are 394. Why is that happening? Because 394 is when they pay off their mortgage. And so they just kind of like, whoop, they all qualify based on that then. Okay, so we talked about why these are similar because they pay off their mortgage. So here's the buy and hold stuff summarized just to show you the fastest ones if they do short-term rentals which we didn't really talk about tonight, but those are the fastest ways for them to achieve financial independence if they buy properties and use them as short-term rentals. Otherwise, this is the kind of the speed of all of them. Okay, what if they nomad? They buy 10 nomad properties, basically buy that first 5% down. They move in, they live there for a year. As soon as they have enough down payment and debt to income ratio to be able to qualify for the next one, they buy the next one, they repeat this until they have uh, 10 properties as rentals. um, And they kind of do that. And if they do that strategy, it takes them 320 months. So besides the short-term rental strategy, nomading, just plain vanilla nomad of buying 10 properties is faster than all the other strategies. Doing all stocks, doing all 15% down, 20% down, 25% down rentals. So nomad crushes it, okay? And honestly, they don't even buy their ninth and 10th property until after they achieve financial independence. So they only need to get to eight before they get those numbers, okay? Fixer upper nomad. So this was the buying ten nomad properties at five percent down. Took three hundred twenty months. If they go buy a property at the discount, and I go, I cover the uh, assumptions for this in last week's class on nomadic. But basically, that takes two hundred thirty one months. So if you're buying properties at a discount and you're getting a little bit better cash flow, knows it's faster. Two hundred thirty one months to buy properties at a discount if you're doing fixer upper nomad. If you could find them in your market. Uh, if you do Nomad by Proxy, you have someone else move in on your behalf, either your kids or your grandparents or your parents, rather, or your grandparents. Um, it could take 214 months to do Nomad by Proxy. And go, go watch last week's class and go find the details of that because there's a lot of nuance to what is involved in that. Okay. Um, if you decide to do short-term rentals with Nomad, so you buy a property, you live there for a year by yourself, then you convert it to a short-term rental where you're getting a little bit of a premium on rent. Uh, If you do that, 154 months. So converting your property to a short-term rental after you move out is uh, 154 months. So now we're going to talk about nomad with house hacking. We covered this last week, but it kind of straddles both realms, right? We have nomad, but then we also have house hacking. So essentially the same as getting a side hustle, which you talked about, extra income each month. Start the income at month 33, which is when they buy their first property. So I just started it when they bought their first one, and I have it go. So I'm gonna show you one roommate, two roommate, three roommates, and four roommates, 650 a month per roommate. So 2,600 if they have four, 650 if they have one, and everything in between, 650 each one. So here it is. These are the three with roommates. So if you have one roommate, it takes 263 months. Doing regular Nomad was 320. Now it takes 263 if you just get one roommate and you do Nomad with house hacking. If you get two roommates, 238 months, just under 20 years to retire those base baseline assumptions. If you get three roommates, 214 months. So I think you save whatever that difference is. Is that two years? 238 to 214, uh, two years. And then uh, if you do four roommates, it's 202 months. So you save another year if you go from three roommates to four roommates. Okay. Any questions on this? Nomad with lease option exit takes longer, 379 months right now with those assumptions. And again, I'm going to point out If you change these assumptions, no man with lease option could be the winner. Like it could be the best strategy. But with the assumptions I use and their starting position and all this stuff going on, it just works out that they don't don't do very well with it. You have questions? No, as soon as they retire, they stop with roommates. So as soon as they hit financial independence, they no longer have roommates because they have enough income coming in after that. Okay. So the ultimate real estate agent retirement plan, if you have a real estate license, and when you buy a property, you put 5% down, you immediately get 3% back. So you get 60% of your down payment back when you buy properties. That takes 310 months, okay? All right, so one house hack with roommates. So now I said, instead of doing Nomad with house hacking, where you're sequentially buying a property every year, I'm saying, look, forget this buying a house every year. You buy one property. You buckle down, you get roommates, you just stay there, and then you do your strategy, whether that's investing in stocks or whether that's buying 20% down rentals or 25% down rentals where you're not moving in, but you're just buying the one property as an owner-occupant, you're getting roommates, and you're staying there, okay? So buying one property only, you're house hacking with roommates one to 4 650 dollars per roommate, and it's essentially the same math as if you got a side hustle allowing you to invest more in the stock market if you think about it that way, right? So you get a roommate, and they're paying $650 a month, So now you just got $650 a month extra income coming in. If you have two roommates, it's $1,300. One could think of doing short-term rentals as having one roommate, two roommates, three roommates, whatever it is. Just think of it that way. Same idea. Okay, so this is one house hack with roommates. This is if you buy no rental properties, you just invest in stocks, 394 months with one roommate. You buy a property and you do... Um, Invest in stocks and you have two roommates, 373 months. Buy one property, 5% down, three roommates, 334 months. And if you buy one property with 5% down, you have four roommates, 304 months. So all you have to do is buy one property, get four roommates, just do do it for 304 months, invest in the stock market, and that's it. That's the strategy there. Okay, what if you do house hacking and then you buy rentals? So we're still doing that one owner-occupant property. We're still getting one, two, three, or four roommates. We're gonna vary those. But now you're gonna buy up to 10 non-owner-occupant rentals. So you're not doing any more nomading. You're not moving anymore. You're just buying 15% down, 20% down, 25% down rentals when you do this. You're gonna vary your down payments between 15% down with PMI, 20 or 25. And we're also gonna compare this to not doing rentals, just investing in stocks, just so you can see the number. Here they are. So you buy one property with 5% down, You have one roommate and you invest in stocks, 394 months. You buy one property with 5% down um, with one roommate and you buy 10, 15% down rentals, 357 months. You buy one property 5% down and you have one roommate and you buy 10, 20% down rentals, 357 months. It's the same as whether you do 15% down or 20% 20 down. doesn't make that big of a difference in this case. Buy one property with 5% down, you do one house hack uh, with one roommate, and you have 10, 25% down rentals, that's faster. 336 months. It was better for you to put 25% down in this particular situation with these assumptions than it was to do 20% or 15%. It's faster. Counterintuitive. Save up more, wait to buy the properties, then when you buy them, they have better cash flow. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but mathematically, it's what happens. Okay. Any questions on this? We're going to go through. Two roommates, same same numbers, two roommates, three roommates, four roommates. Okay, this is two roommates, same thing. One house hack, two roommates, just investing in stocks, 373 months. One property, two roommates, you're gonna buy 10, 15% down rentals, 321 months. Buy the property with two roommates, you're gonna buy 10, 20% down rentals, 316 months. So that's like five months faster than 15, or sorry, five months, yeah, five months faster. And then you buy 25% down rentals, you still have one house hack, two roommates, 297 months. Crazy, right? All right. Three roommates. Just do stocks, 334 months. You buy 15% down rentals, 293 months. You buy 20% down rentals, 285 months. You buy 25% down rentals, 273 months. So it's faster put more down counterintuitive. I think for a lot of folks,
0: any questions on this
2: way before 67, that's correct. That none of them include their social security because they qualify for financial independence way before that kicks in. That sort of becomes a backstop where if they haven't been able to make enough money by 67, then social security kicks in and it usually bumps from right above. So really in that case, they're not collecting social security. When they get to the point where they are collecting social security, provided it exists, then it's a bonus. It's basically increases their... Uh, their
1: Till 67. What do you mean?
0: Yes, but if you already have enough to live financially independence, doesn't matter. Yes. And so
2: that's correct. That's what I said before. That's why I said, I I assumed it was going that you're working a six, seven, but really if they stop working early, it's going to be lower than that. But by then it doesn't matter because they've already achieved financial independence earlier. They have enough income coming in from their investments between, you know, rental property cash flow or the stock market that's safe withdrawal rate, that it doesn't matter because they've got whatever it is, $5,000 adjusted for inflation coming in. Yep. But then you're right. It doesn't go up anymore. And you gotta decide, should I work till 67 so that I can keep getting income and adding to it? Well, I don't think it matters. I mean, I'm 40, I'm 47, I don't know how old am I? 47, and I don't care. Well, think, so this this is why there could be a full day class in this. If we go look at their actual like retirement income, When you have rental properties and you just pass over that line, if you haven't paid off your properties, your standard of living tends to increase over time where it doesn't matter. Rents kind of creep up a little bit. Your expenses creep up, but it's only taxes, insurance, and maintenance. It's really not that principal and interest part of the payment, and so that stays fixed. So your cash flow tends to improve. Once you get over that threshold, when you have rental properties, it tends to keep kind of creeping up, and then magical things happen every time you pay off a property. It's a big bump. Right. Cause you no longer have principal interest payment at all. So every payment that pays every property that pays off, if you're buying them a year apart or whatever it is, when you're buying 20% down or 15% down, it's nice little chunks up every time you do that. And it's more than keeping up with inflation because if your rents are keeping up with inflation at 3%, but rents is rent is the, the whole amount. And only your expenses, like your tax insurance are increasing. The other part of it staying fixed. The amount of your cash flow is increasing faster than that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is why we could dig in. I've charts on showing like all this great stuff. It's really, really cool. But yes, it doesn't matter. Once you get to the point you're like, okay, social security is just a bonus. It's, it's like if, if property values and rents went down and I was, you know, I just had enough to kind of creep over the line. If everything was paid off, I've got, you know, just enough for that. Then social security becomes like an extra thing. But for the most part, it's a blip on the, on the chart for most people. Age 43, for which one? 273? Yeah, so age 43. That's not bad, not bad. All right, so this is uh, three house acts, three roommates. If you do four and you just invest in stocks, 304 months, if you buy the 15% down rentals, 293 months. If you buy the 20% down rentals, it's 285 months. And if you buy the four, if you buy the 25% down, it's 273 months, okay? Now what I did is I combined all just the house hacking ones and I tried to group them so that you could just see visually how big they are. The numbers are all there, but it's gonna be hard for you to read back there. But you could see, this is, the, um, this is the one where they are just investing in the stock market. This is the one where they're doing um, uh, one roommate with 15% down, 20% and 25. And then this is two roommates, three roommates and four roommates. The difference between three roommates and four roommates is not significant at all. It's actually the same.
0: So it didn't matter. Yeah, so Nick says
2: it's easier to find a four bedroom house than a five bedroom house. And I think in some markets that's true, but you could find a you know three bedroom house with two rooms in the basement too, right? So you definitely can find five bedroom type units. Yep, but you can see a steady decline for the most part as you do this, and as you go from fifteen percent down to twenty five percent down for these numbers. What I find interesting though is you get four roommates and you like ignore like you ignore all the real estate stuff. Still three hundred four months, which is pretty promising, right? Even better than doing some rental stuff uh, with two roommates and stuff like that. A lot less work, right? Right. So you got to make it worthwhile. And again, it's these specific assumptions and their like situation and their properties and everything else. You buy in a different market, the numbers could be very different. And there's another weird thing that's going on here is equity does not get calculated into this formula with my assumptions. Why? Because equity doesn't count to financial independence, right? You, you remember the formula for financial independence is uh, all the passive income from annuities, Social Security, um, and... Um, Pensions. So that's not any of those. Cash flow from properties. It's not really there, although it's kind of a weird function of that when you pay off a property. But then on the bottom part of it is that uh, 4% safe withdrawal rate on any assets you have invested in the stock market, mutual funds, everything else. It doesn't include equity because you don't do 4% safe withdrawal rate on equity. So I don't want to speculate because sometimes with leverage, you end up with a weird net worth thing where it could be better. But in general, yeah, you end up with higher money invested in stocks in order to generate that same dollar amount. Yeah. Crazy, right? Okay. So this is all the ones for house hacking. Any questions? Then this is everything. Okay. So the green ones are all the buy and hold stuff. Then it starts Nomad, but these, these were the Nomad ones that were sort of odd ones out. These were Nomads with house hacking. So I kind of separated those out. And these are some other weird Nomad ones. And then these were all the house hacking ones. So you can just see visually how they all compare to each other in terms of speed. And just eyeballing it, Nomad's fastest, right? Which is what we've been saying for a long time in these classes. But house hacking is pretty good especially compared to traditional buy and hold. Right? And honestly, when you combine house hacking and Nomad, those tend to be pretty sweet. Like the combination of moving into properties, buying with 5% down, and then also having roommates while you do that, pretty sweet model. There's only a few better than that. And that's sort of these like, you know, Nomad by proxy, Nomad with short-term rentals, and Fixer Upper Nomad. Those are these three, which are kind of like the lowest of all of them. Although they're not really the lowest of all of them because some of these are a little bit faster, right? 202 versus 214. Nomad with short-term rentals is the best right now of the ones we've done so far. With these assumptions in this particular situation, which you can't overgeneralize this because you got to run your own numbers. But if you're trying to evaluate what plan to do, you put in your numbers, you put in your situation, you run the software and you run through, each one of these to find out which one makes sense in my market with these things. All right, I think that's it. So, oh, I got like one conclusion slide, but I think I've talked about most of it. So I'll go back to this slide so we can look at it and have more discussions But So in conclusion, assumptions for modeling matter a lot. So house hacking once versus acquiring more properties, that no matter with house hacking or with buy and hold kind of running in parallel, if you change the assumptions like your income expenses, market conditions, the appreciation rate, the rent appreciation rate, the price, Interest rates, rents, vacancies, maintenance, property management, tax insurance, all those things will impact the results here. And they may change which one wins, right? I'll just give you a really basic example of this. If you're house hacking with one house, but you're primarily investing in the stock market versus you compare buying a a property where the price appreciation or rent appreciation is abnormally low, that one may look much, much better than that. But if you run a number where you're, you're buying in a fastly appreciating market with fastly appreciating rents and interest rates that may be back on the decline at some point, that could look way, way better than other strategies, right? Mm-hmm. Or how big of a discount you can get with your, your buy, fix up, and resell, which we haven't covered yet, but the, uh, the, the like, uh, fixer up or nomad even, like those can really matter. If you get a big enough discount, that could blow everything else away. Or if your short-term rentals don't work out as well, they're not as profitable. Or maybe they're much more profitable than I assumed with my assumptions. That could also matter. Uh, The stock market rate of return will matter too. It also affects not just numbers. This is actually a really good point. I'm going to slow down and talk to you about this because it's really critical to understand. So one of the reasons a lot of these strategies outperform others has to do with your risk profile. If you're investing small amounts of money and you're taking on a lot of debt, you're much more leveraged, and so your risk profile of doing a strategy where you're buying 5% down properties and you're repeating every year is very, very different than the risk profile of someone investing and putting 25% down or someone investing in stocks. It's not saying automatically that one is better or worse because there are ways that it could be better or worse depending on how it's structured and what your situation is, but it's different. Like you, if you're investing all in stocks, you now have the risk profile of a stock investor versus the risk profile of someone who's doing buy and hold or someone that's doing Nomad. And so these strategies, one could get you there faster, but if you look at all the different ways we measure risk, and there's several different ways that we look at stuff, everything from your, you know, your debt to your net worth, to your debt to your liquid net worth, to your rent resiliency, to your uh, equity resiliency, like all of those different ways of measuring uh, like risk in a, in a particular strategy, and you compare those one risk curve versus another risk curve, you may say, this is not worth the extra three years that I would earn. Or you may say, it is totally worth that to do it this way. And you can kind of look at those things. So risk matters a lot. And and this comment about what you're investing in and its risk profile is pretty profound.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah.
2: So what Nick said off mic is you got to take into account the amount of work you're putting into. Doing short-term rentals could be a lot more work than just automatically investing $1,000 from your paycheck in index fund each month. Um, And so you got to be aware of that too. So totally, absolutely. And we talked about that idea when we talked about how part of the extra return you're getting from short-term rentals is your labor. It's not just dollar return. So yes. Um, your safe withdrawal rate would matter here. Whether you're buying duplex, triplex, fourplex, or single family homes would also matter. Um, the strategies that work best in that market may differ from your market. You got to do the math. And I tried to do modeling for about 300 US cities. If you go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model and just pick your city, I tried to do, and it's getting better. It's more like a late alpha kind of situation here. It's going to get a lot better over time. But the idea is that there'll be like a hundred different scenarios all pre-done for you where you just copy it to your own account and just make changes to whatever you're doing. So
0: any questions?
2: No, no questions? You already took them all? I don't know, I found it pretty interesting to kind of see these all laid out. I've never done it like this before where I've kind of laid out buy and hold versus Nomad versus house hacking all on one chart before. So I found this pretty interesting. Do you guys find it interesting?
0: Anyone changing their strategy based on this? You gotta do more nomad? Weren't you weren't you telling me last week that you were buying properties and then selling them? Yeah. Buy, fix up, then
2: resell. Like at roommates? Yeah. Yeah. The two, I think I talked to you about this last week. Doing the two years is um. It's not, it's not as good because if you could do them once a, if you do them once a year, you just pay the tax, you end up working out better. If you actually sit down and do the math. So just pretend you, you sold it and actually paid the tax on it. And then imagine you could do one every two years instead of one, every one, every year, instead of one, every two years, you end up, you pay more taxes, but you end up netting more.
1: Yeah. It, it, it'd
2: be good it'd be good but i mean yeah as kevin says it would be hard to get roommates while you're doing the fix and flip a little discount <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll not call 50 bucks use this outhouse yeah Uh, So yes, I mean, the thing is, when you model like real situations, like somebody doing stuff, you've a lot of times you're entering in existing properties that they own. And then you're modeling, okay, I'm gonna do, if I could do one fix and flip a year, like actual fix and flip, and I make an extra whatever it is $25,000. So that's like $25,000 in income that happens irregularly. And then I'm also doing this nomad thing. And I'm also getting extra income from some house hacking. And maybe I'm getting my nomads at a discount. and then eventually I'm going to stop that strategy because I'm going to get married and my wife's not going to be willing to like house hack or nomad or whatever. And so now I'm going to go to 20% down after 10 years. And then what does that look like if I do that? And then I'm going to go buy, you know, big apartment buildings. I'm not going to do this, you know, single family home stuff anymore. Oh, you know, it's kind of like ignoring all that stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to be a real investor, right? You know, uh, I'm making a joke because the single family homes is, is really good anyway. Um, but you go and you decide to switch your strategy and you do all this stuff. So, or maybe you're like, hey, I'm going to do hard money loans after I get to a certain point. And then so instead of earning 8% in the stock market, I'm going to get 12, 13, 14, 15, 16%. You know, there's all these different variations on what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and what that looks like. And I think you you have to model it. And then, like I said before about those risk profiles, then you're really comparing, well... If I do this strategy, my risk profile looks very different and I have different risk exposures than I have if I do just this one strategy or these two strategies and timing works and what happens, really what you wanna know, this is getting way off topic. We, we've, when we've done all these assumptions, the biggest problem we have with this is that we're assuming 3% fixed appreciation, 3% rent appreciation, um, that you know interest rates have remained the same throughout all the scenario, like there's all these simplified things. Inflation is, is static, like inflation, rent appreciation, home price appreciation, mortgage interest rates, and there's one other, well, stock market rate of return. So there's like five that I really like to vary. So if you if you do it differently, have you guys ever been to a financial planner where they do Monte Carlo analysis? They say, if you invest $500 a month in the stock market, you have an 86% chance of, being financially independent by age 65. Like you've done it where they've done the thousand run Monte Carlo with the stock market and you see all the little wiggly lines and they show you your middle line and your kind of band of probability. Have, have you seen all this? Everybody guys know what I'm talking about? So we do that with real estate. So instead of it being 3% fixed appreciation, I say, well, let's make it random. Let's make it so that on average it's 3%, but it could be negative 10. We could have a really bad year, or it could be positive. I don't know where we see this last year, 18? So positive 18. So we can have this really wide range of what like home price appreciation is and random rent appreciation and random mortgage interest rates and random stock market rates. And so we can have all of those being random. And then you tell me your strategy where you're like, okay, I want to buy a house every year as a nomad and I want to get want to get roommates. Like how does that look when maybe house prices go up really, really fast on you in year three and you're unable to buy them because your debt to income ratio gets all out of whack. Or maybe... They, they kind of like remain low and snake along. And then by the time you've acquired five, they take off. Or maybe they take off and then they have a big market correction. And maybe the money you have in the stock market kind of gets hammered while you're waiting for your down payments. And all of these random things are happening. And we do a thousand runs or so. And then I show you what's your probability for success there and what your probability risk curve is for all that stuff. That's what's crazy. Because then you could see, well, what happens if everything's not up and to the right? It's not always 3%. It's not always the mortgage interest rates are going to go in my favor or the stock market's going to go in my favor. Then you start to see, oh, well, this is problematic. I don't actually get to my financial independence number all but these really small amount of times if I do this particular strategy because I'm being super aggressive. You know, like if you're you're constantly pulling cash out and like cash out refinances in order to leverage up and do stuff, that looks really different when you have some years where you don't have, you know, all positive appreciation rates and rent appreciations and mortgage interest rates and what happens if you're trying to pull cash out when interest rates are not really low anymore and there's a penalty to doing cash out refinances, the rate's higher, you know this, right? And you can only go to 75% loan to value and there's a cost to get the loan. We calculate all those things in with these random numbers and it tells a very different story than this, right? Cause this is like, what I can teach in class is this. And, and for some of you, like even this is like, holy crap James, too many numbers, right? Like I can't keep everything straight. So imagine me trying to go and do, yeah, do Monte Carlo, like good luck, right? But I, I do that in the, the real estate financial planner podcast. So like the real estate financial planner podcast, not the one that these classes are on, but the, those are actually like, I pick one. So for example, um, I think we're doing, um, where is it? We're doing the one where he just bought an owner-occupant property. So it's this one. It's over here. So we did did episode seven. So episode seven is me taking a single situation. They bought one owner occupied property and they invested in stocks. And I do like a 20 minute episode telling their story and walking through with fixed assumptions. Then I do an advanced episode where I make everything random. And I go into detail about how random stock market rates, random rent, random price, all that stuff impacts them in that one situation. And then next week I'll do episode eight, which is them buying 20% down rentals. So that becomes episode eight for the Real Estate Financial Planner podcast. And then there's an advanced version of that and they're separate podcasts. So that's the thinking. So over time, you'll start to get a feel of, oh, this is more risky, you know, lower probability of success than this one, or the range, the variance is much greater where they may be able to achieve financial independence really early if things really go their way, but it could be really, really late if they do that where another strategy might be a very narrow band. It's like within five years and like 90% of the of the runs are within that, right? And so you could see the difference between those. Does that sort of make sense? Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oops. Yes.
2: 10%. Yeah, because that could happen. So we could do it such that they're tied. Like I can make it so that You know, rent and and price, rent, rent appreciation and price appreciation are the same. So if one's going up 5%, the other one's going up 5%, we could do that. Um, Or I could make it so that they're at least correlated, right? Like I could do, it's five, it's your 5% appreciation and then do like plus or minus one from that, right? Like I could do some type of coding to that. I haven't gotten to that point yet, um, partially because I do think that you can see situations where they are uncorrelated. And so I kept it uncorrelated for that reason. Um. What's that? You can. Yeah, you can see like the wide range of things in that case. Yeah. Are you like a math person? Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. Good. Awesome. I mean, I, I like math people. <laughs> so. Yeah. Right. So you get you get the range of values to do it
0: that way. Yeah. So you get you understand what I'm talking about.
2: So I I didn't program specifically in a pandemic, but I did do um, market corrections. And so what I did is I have a, another rule you could run where there's a random event. And during that random event, we have a precipitous drop of the stock market and a precipitous drop of prices and rents. And so you have like a event, you could set whatever the probability you want it to be, you know, one in a hundred months or one in a thousand months, you set whatever it is. And then the actual range of what the drop is. So you could say it's, you know, somewhere between, five and 20 or five and 30 or five and 40. And that's a percent. And so it just drops the stock market completely by that amount or property values by that amount or whatever it is. And you could set those up as like one-off market correction drops. And that's an additional rule besides just the random things, which I haven't, you know, I'm, I'm not even doing that in the advanced things because I haven't built it up to where I feel as though people can follow along. Eventually they'll get to the point where they're like, okay, this old hat, James, you're, you're doing random every time. Like Oh, no, no, no. There's a lot more. (laughs) So yeah.
0: Pandemic button. Yeah. Yes. That's right. That's right. Yes. So you could put your own stuff in there, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. You, you look at your own charts. So we have a whole chart for rent resiliency. And I've yet to build the equity resiliency chart, but that's gonna be built before the next class, for the class that I teach on that. Um, but yes, so you go look at the curve and then you look at the curve compared to another scenario. So you make, a, you make your build out your whole scenario. This is my plan. Then you make a copy and then you modify the copy so that the copy becomes, okay, instead of doing this, change this and change this and change this. And then you could plot the charts over each other to see, oh, here's my cash flow. here's my net worth, Here's my rent resiliency chart. Here's my debt to net worth. Here's my debt to my liquid balance, all my account balance stuff. Here's my number of reserves that I have in cash. Um, you know, here is, um, you know, like here's my time to financial independence. Here's my time to, you know, my ideal financial independence. Here's my time to uh, two times my ideal financial independence. So you can look at all of these different metrics and compare them. And it's it's not, you can't, just like we saw here, you can't just look at one number and see, right? You. There's so much more going on beyond these numbers that it's hard for you to understand because some of these, you might get to financial independence, but then your standard of living, you gotta hug that financial independence number. You gotta hug $5,000 a month, inflation adjusted. Otherwise it's gonna be ugly. And then other ones like, you're blowing through $5,000 a month. You're, you're $5,000 a month going toward 20,000 a month because your rents on all your properties once they're paid off is very different than the rents, you know than just investing in stocks as an example. And so there's more to it than just number, right? We kind of focus in on this as a simplistic tool just for teaching, but it's nuance. It's, I mean, everything is nuanced, right? Like you talk about somebody in your job, they're like, oh, so you, you do this in your job. You know, you, you sit down and you plug in numbers on your spreadsheet all day and that's what you do. Well, sort of, <laughs> I mean, maybe a little bit more than that, right? Like it's, it's like, there's more to it than what you first see. So I don't know, that's how I think about it. All right, any questions? All right. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. I will see you all next week for whatever we're doing. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Elgin is harder
0: than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary
2: 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today.
1: If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Elgin that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors buy, sell, and finance their real estate investments. See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.